Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you all. Um, so when I started grad school, I, well, let me back up. I have, since I was younger, had this amazing gift in which I think I'm cooler or smarter or better than I really am. And over the course of my life, I feel like God has found nice ways to humor that. Um, so I started grad school with the, every intention of studying philosophy um, and in thinking I was smarter than I really was, I decided to take a class called epistemology. And if you're unfamiliar, epistemology is just a fancy word for theory of knowledge or a way in which you study how you know what you know. And I left that class not really sure I knew anything. Um, so it's a very fun and difficult and taxing class. And I quickly decided after that class was over that philosophy is not something I wanted to study and dedicate my life to. But what I did learn in that class, what was really helpful for me, was that their um, philosophical literature, the ways in which people write in that kind of field and study, is they write in such a way where they, they try to anticipate every question that their, uh, their audience might have, and then they try to answer those questions as they go throughout the writing. So they'll, they'll make a claim, they'll make, here's some, some objections to that, and then they'll, they'll give the best reasons for why they think what they're saying is true. And I think what's really awesome is that I think the author of Hebrews writes in a very similar fashion. He's anticipating what his audience, what his readers might be thinking, and he's trying to answer and give the best explanation for his point, which is that Jesus is really, really awesome. So it's a good point to make. Uh, but his audience in this context, uh, we've been in the book of Hebrews now for, for three weeks, and his audience uh, is never specifically named, but because the book of Hebrews writes a lot with a, an assumed knowledge of Old Testament, we, we think that he's writing to Jewish Christians. And so what's been really helpful for me to sort of understand the flow of thought as to why he would talk about angels or to why he would talk about Moses and why he would talk about this guy named Melchizedek is to imagine... Imagine that, that the author of Hebrews is sitting down for a cup of coffee and across from the table from him is a Jewish Christian. And the Jewish Christian is saying, okay, like, I think I like this Jesus person that I've heard about, but could you explain a little bit more what's going on? So that's why we see in chapter one, he says, hey, in the past, God has spoken through angels and through prophets and given us this message, but now God is speaking through his son. And he stops right there and he, he begins this big discourse on why Jesus is not an angel. And for you and I, that seems really odd because we think, I've never even once considered that Jesus could be an angel. But if you're a Jewish person in that time, every context you've ever known in which the message of God has been given to the people has been mediated through angels. Uh, it's believed in, in Deuteronomy 33 when, when the Torah, the word of God, was given to Moses that angels gave it to him. There's this Jewish tradition that holds that angels gave Ju Moses the law. And then some, some people in, in some not very popular traditions would hold that God, when he spoke to Moses, actually that was done through the mediation of angels. And so he's saying, when, when you think of messengers and messages from God, you think angels. But you need to understand that Jesus is not like anything that's ever happened before. And so that's why he has this long discourse of, of why there's angels. And if you were with us last week, you saw that, that what Jesus was, was doing was, was far superior to anything. And, and the, the idea that we landed at the end of last week was that Jesus was way better than anything we had before. And the temptation of the Jewish Christians was to lower him to sort of fit in with their worldview. And that makes sense. It makes sense if, if this is who you are, if you're a Jewish Christian, because as a Jewish person, you would probably wake up every single day and you would say something called the Shema, 
which is a, a prayer that they would pre- repeat every single day. And it's very simple. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so they've, they've every day meditated on this prayer that God is one. And so to come across the idea that Jesus is God was something that was sort of worldview changing and shifting for them. And so it was necessary for the author of Hebrews to break in and talk about how Jesus is not just a messenger, not just an angel, but far above that in every way. And so as we pick up in chapter two of Hebrews, it's really important then to understand why he says that. As we read in verse one, he says, therefore, and we can almost insert this phrase, it says, therefore, because Jesus is far superior to any message or any messenger that we've ever heard before, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, one of the first things we notice is that he gives a very harsh warning. He's saying what Jesus said, because we can trust what the angels have said and what was delivered to us then, if Jesus brought this message, we can't ignore it. It would be to our detriment to ignore it. I would compare it to... um, how my mom used to communicate to us is when I was growing up. So I am one of five. And so my mom cannot be everywhere all at once. And she's actually here again in the service. Hi, mom. It's good to see you. <laughs> so what she would often do is she would send a messenger, one of, our, one of my siblings to come tell us like, okay, you need to clean your room, Cody. Mom says you need to clean your room. And so it'd be very easy if my younger sister, Kaylee, walked in the room and says, mom said you need to do this. It'd be very easy to ignore it. And then, you know, like my brother would come in, my older brother and my older sister. But if mom came in the room and said, you need to clean your room, you don't ignore that message. And very very similarly, it's as if the author of Hebrews is saying, mom's in the room and you can't ignore this message. You've heard messages from before and the punishment for that was was severe and that's true, but, but mom's in the room and you can't ignore this message. He's also not really leaving any, uh, any freedom for a Jewish person to say, I'll, I'll take Yahweh, but I won't take Jesus. For him, he's saying there is no God apart from Jesus. You can't have one and the other. Jesus is so important and so crucial to understand that you can't miss this. In fact, there are big consequences if you don't. And he says, um, he gives his first uh, command that we find in the book of Hebrews. And this is sort of a pattern that we'll see later on as we study the text in which he'll make a statement, explain something, and then give a warning and a command. And he'll make another statement and explain something and give another warning and a command. Um, But here he says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Um, So Joel Elwood is a pastor on staff here. He's one of our assistant executive pastors. And I've known Joel for... Seven or eight years, he's, he's been a good friend of mine. Um, and I have known Joel to lose three rings. He's lost three wedding, he's lost his wedding ring three, three times. Three times. And it's not really his fault. He's got really big knuckles and tiny fingers, so it just, it just slips off. But what happens is all, all of them have been at the beach. He walks into the water, his hand shrinks a little bit because the water's cold, and his ring slips off. And an hour later, he goes, oh yeah, that's not there anymore. So he buys 20, like $25 rings off Amazon, doesn't spend a whole lot of money because he just anticipates that he's going to lose it again. But <laughs> the, the imagery that we get from the, the nuance of the language is, is that. 
that drifting is something, it's not something where you wake up one morning and you decide, you wake up, you go to church on Sunday and you agree and believe in the message and you say, that's great. And you wake up on Monday morning, you go, well, actually, I, I, don't, I don't really believe in that anymore. It's not this dramatic shift. It's a slow, progressive, unnoticed shift. It's a drift away from truth that is slow and progressive and unnoticed. So uh, I have, my wife and I re- recently purchased a, a van um, for the purposes of re-outfitting as sort of a camper. So we bought this, um, this dinky little van, which is really awesome. It's actually one of the church vans. It's like a blue and white striped van. Like half the people in this room have been on a trip in that. So that's our van now. So r- raise your hand actually if you've been in that blue and white. Yep. Cool, like 12 of you. That's awesome. Well, it's mine now, so don't ever go in it again. Um, so I've been, I've been buying, we bought this van and the, the plan is to outfit it as sort of like a camper to take on trips. But currently it's been used a lot for surfing. So I used to surf a lot in high school and I'm trying to get back into it. And um, so I've been going surfing a lot. And how many people have ever been surfing before? Okay, more than you than have been in my van, which is cool. Um, so while you're surfing, when you, when you get into the water and you start surfing, what happens almost every single time is that you start to drift away from where you started. That's just the nature of currents that kind of pull you or wherever the swell is bringing you that kind of pulls you away from where you started. And similarly to the, to the idea that drifting in, in our walk with Jesus is something that can be slow and unnoticed, it's just like surfing. You get in the water and you're swimming and you're living life and you're, you're catching your waves and then you look up and you realize that you're three lifeguard towers from where you started and you ask yourself the question, how did this happen? And you're like, dang it, I have to like get out and I'm exhausted and it's, it's kind of a bummer, but that, that can happen in our lives as Christians. When we make compromises or live life apathetically towards Christ, we end up drifting away from truth and from the solid ground with which we are meant to stand on. Compromise is what brings us into drifting. Letting go of the things that are most important. And really, there's only, there's only a few ways in which you can, when you're surfing, you can fight that drift. So you can recognize that you have drifted and start the long, arduous process of paddling back towards where you want to be, or you can pull yourself out of the water and walk back all the way over there. There's a, there's a, there's a song, there's this cheesy Christian song that plays on the fish, and I don't like it, but it's one of those things where I know every word to it. Does anyone have those songs where like, you hate something so much that you end up knowing all about it? I I guess I don't hate it. I just strongly don't like it. Anyways, the words of the song are, uh, it's, it talks about the, the, the turn from Jesus being a slow fade. He says, it's when black and white are turned to gray, when you give yourself away. And then there's this tagline that says, people never crumble in a day. And the, the idea that, that the author of Hebrews is warning against is saying, if you don't fix your eyes on this message of Jesus, you will drift away. As a, as a Christian, there is no point in which we are allowed to be static. You are either moving towards Jesus or slowly starting to drift away. And so the answer for us is to pay attention to what we have heard, to pay attention to the word, to fix our eyes on what we know to be true. And that can look very differently in many people's lives. But I think just very simply, fixing your eyes on community and on the word of God being diligent and disciplined to, to do the things that are difficult to do in order to keep yourself from drifting away. I love uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians says something really awesome. Um, he compares the, the walk of, or the lifestyle of following Jesus as a race. He says, in this race, 
here's how I live. He says, I discipline my body and I, I he says this really strong language. He says, I beat it and I make it my slave so that I won't be disqualified from the prize. That imagery is intense. Paul is so convinced that Jesus is worth following and so convinced that he doesn't want to drift away that he disciplines and destroys his body so that he won't be disqualified. And there's, there's something there for all of us to know that the work of following Jesus takes effort. If we're not careful, it is very, very easy to drift away from the truth of Jesus. People don't crumble and drift away from Jesus in a day. It takes compromise and apathy and remaining static. And so the encouragement from the author to his audience and to you today is to look at the areas and reflect on which your life in which you are tempted to let go, to make small compromises. To say, I don't, I don't need community today. I don't need to pray with other people today. I don't need to ask people to pray for me today because that's weird or that's, that doesn't feel right to me or I'm tired today. There is a sense in which the Christian life is one in which we're called to be disciplined. Um, but the author of Hebrew does this really, Hebrews does this really great thing in which he tells people why. Why would you be disciplined? And very simply, he says in, in, in chapter five is that it's because what Jesus had to offer us was salvation. And the gospel that he gave us was good news because we were now going to be saved. And he does something interesting. He explains what Jesus does after he warns them and after he tells them of the consequences of, of forgetting this. And uh, it can be sort of interesting to understand. Let's read this in verse five. It says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. He's talking about angels again, because he likes that, I guess. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. And at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now you and I would, would read this. Most of us probably read this and go, okay, that's, that's a weird quotation that he pulled up. Does anyone, does anyone know where that quote's from? He's quoting from somewhere else in scripture. Does anyone have any idea where, that, where that's from? So I'm eight, right. Last, last, last service, only one other person got it as well. It's not something that's natural for you and I to look up and go, Psalm eight, unless you've done some research on your own. But if you're a Jewish Christian and your whole life has been steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, when he starts quoting this small portion of this Psalm, you would go, oh, I totally get what you're talking about. And so let's, let's turn really quickly to Psalm eight because it, it explains a little bit more about what Jesus did for us and how we have received this salvation. Psalm 8, verse 3. On my Bible, it's page 450. So turn to 450. Uh, (laughs) When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, starting off in verse 3, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. In this psalm, the author is reveling in the glorified position of humanity amongst the rest of God's creation. He's saying, man uniquely has been placed in a position that no other created being has. So just a little bit lower than the heavenly beings and all things have been put under him. 
But the reality is that's, that's not how life feels. That's not how life looks. It doesn't feel as if all things have been put under man. And that verse sort of like puts up warning lights or flashers if you're a Jewish Christian to go, oh, I know what he's talking about. That's talking about Genesis 1. See, in Genesis 1, verse 28, God creates Adam and Eve, and he says this. He says, uh, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves over the earth. So essentially what, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that Psalm 8 tells us about what humanity is supposed to be. And it's a reminder that in the very beginning of creation, God had uniquely blessed and created humanity to have rule and dominion over the world. But because of sin in our lives, we were never, never able to fulfill that role. And so what he's making the claim is that this person, Jesus, is for us what we could never be. Jesus fulfills this perfect humanity when coming down and taking on human flesh. He fulfills for us what we can never be. He says, as a result of Jesus being this perfect human, he comes down now on earth and tastes death for everyone so that you and I don't have to live in slavery and fear of death. If we keep reading in Hebrews chapter two, verse 10 says, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, and that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, and I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Last week, uh, we looked at this idea that among everything else, Christ was supposed to be superior and is seated at this high place of honor and glory. He is the most supreme ruler, the most supreme authority that we can ever have. And Darren had this, this encouragement, this exhortation to keep Jesus in this elevated position because the temptation is to lower him to something that he's not to make him easier to deal with. The temptation is to say, this isn't Jesus, the ruler of the world. This is Jesus, my buddy, and, and he's a nice guy. And you can follow him if you want to. But the, the idea is that we need to keep Jesus elevated in this position But what the author of Hebrews is letting us know is that when we elevate Jesus in this position and reflect on what he's done, we realize that he has come down to where we are and raised us up in a position where now this supreme and elevated leader is someone that we can call brother. And it's this this interesting juxtaposition between this ultimate authority who really has no business helping us. It is unbelievable that Christ would do what he did. That Christ would come down into the world, take on humanity, join himself to humanity and taste death for us so that we could be raised up and be able to call the creator of the world brother. Unbelievable. And as a result of what Christ has done, as a result of him coming down and rescuing us, we read in verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He's reminding the Jewish Christian as he's across the coffee table, he's saying, listen, your position was lifelong death and slavery, but the work of Jesus is freedom from fear of death. You can imagine the Jewish Christian across the table saying, are you serious? That's unbelievable. God could never do something like that. He's saying, of course he did. He says, for surely it's not for angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God who makes propitiation for sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And you can sort of just picture this Jewish Christian across the coffee table saying, so so you're telling me that God became human and saved us so that then I could call him brother and that then he can help me when I'm tempted because he knows what I've been through? That's ridiculous. I don't understand how that ever could be possible. What he's highlighting is the fact that Jesus is amazing. He's saying in view of everything and who Jesus is, you need to understand that he is awesome. It's, very, it's, it's an extended way of saying Jesus is really, really great because of what he's done, the way in which he did it, and where we are now in relation to him. No longer are we strangers to God, but we get to call him a brother. And he looks to God and he says, God, these are my children. The relationship change between Jesus and us because of what he did is critical in this passage of Hebrews. Um, one thing that's really interesting is to see the, the context in which he talks about how awesome Jesus is versus the warning that he gives at the beginning of the chapter. So he gives us this warning that says, be careful not to stray away from it because there are consequences if, if you do. And sometimes I think in, in terms of our life as Christians, what we focus on is, is the warnings and the punishments. So we look at our relationship with Jesus and we say, I have to do these things because if I don't, there's punishment coming. And it's really interesting to see that he mentions the warning and punishment and he does this throughout the chapters and it's meant to make you a little uncomfortable. You're meant to look at that and go, that feels weird to me because that makes me a little scared. It's meant to make you see that, that, that not choosing Jesus and neglecting him is a dangerous and and foolish idea, but when he follows it up with how great Jesus is, he's reminding us that our motivation to follow God, our motivation to, to love Jesus and discipline ourselves and keep ourselves from drifting away is not out of fear of punishment, it's out of response to how amazing God is. Our response is not fear. Uh, I had a friend who, um, sort of an interesting guy, uh, he bought a van and lived out of it, which I feel like I'm kind of on that path. Um, but he, he, in college, oh, and he studied philosophy. Well, I, I left philosophy. So he, uh, he studied philosophy and sort of became disillusioned with this idea of, of how the world worked. And he, he saw that what he thought people were just very controlled by money. And so he committed his life to saying, I'm not going to be controlled by money. Money's not something that's going to have a hold on me. And so what he did is he bought a van. He didn't pay anything out. He bought a very cheap van, outfitted it to live in there, ended up climbing in Yosemite for like most of his life. And he would eat garbage so that he wouldn't spend money. Just like a really interesting guy, really awesome. And turns out you can eat garbage and not get sick because he did it for like five years. So if you're hungry. Um, <laughs> so, so we did this and uh, we had another friend who was pretty close to him. And she one day was saying, your attempts to live not enslaved to money, have pushed you to, to a position where you are just as enslaved to money because you're, you're living the opposite way. In your attempts to live not a slave to money, you are just as much a slave to money because you're trying so hard to not be enslaved by it. What Jesus come and came and rescued us from was slavery from fear of death. And when we're motivated to follow Jesus by fear of punishment and death, we're just as enslaved to it as we were before. Our motivation for following Jesus is not punishment. It's not fear. That's exactly what we've been freed from. That's exactly what we need to remember today. Um, I have a dog 
who I, I showed a picture of a couple times ago when I spoke, but her name is Scout, and she's adorable, and that's all you need to know about her. But uh, if you've ever had a dog, uh, you know that there's this process of training that you have to do. And um, in order to train a dog, there are a couple methods that you can go about it. Um, and what has been the most positive method, and what by far is the most positive method, is with love and positive motivation and encouragement. Now, the interesting thing is that you can train a dog to do exactly what you want with fear, and you can train a dog to do exactly what you want with love. You can get the same result. We have a neighbor across the street who I, I watched hit, with their, hit their dog with a shoe to get their dog to stop barking. I can do the same thing with my dog and just call her over me and pet her, encourage her and comfort her. You can get the same result with fear as you can with love. And sometimes we're tempted to believe that what Jesus wants from us is fear of him in a way that's crippling. And what the author is making very clear in Hebrews chapter two is our motivation to follow God, to steal ourselves and to discipline our bodies and to, to keep ourselves from drifting is not out of fear. It's out of the love that Jesus had for us. It's in response to who he is, which I think is very important for us to understand because that will change us. If our worldview shifts to understand that what God wants us to do is not out of fear, not out of worrying of being punished, but out of following him for how amazing he is, then think about the ways in which that would change how you walk through life. Think about the ways that would change how you minister to other people. Do you want to talk to someone about Jesus because you're worried that they're going to go to hell or worried that they're going to be punished by God? Or do you want to talk to them because you are so overwhelmed by the joy and awesomeness of God that you want them to be a part of it? How much better of a response is that to say, come join me versus you're going to hell? The difference is unbelievable. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to make us see is that we are not people who are motivated by fear. That's the very thing we've been saved from. There is very real consequences for not following Jesus and for neglecting the message that he brings. But our motivation is love. Our motivation is in response to the unbelievable person of Jesus. Elevated yet near. Elevated yet near. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you went to such great lengths to save us. We thank you that we are in a position where we're not distant from you, where you're not distant from us, where you are close and you speak to us. God, I ask for everyone in this room that you would show them the ways in their lives in which they are motivated to follow you, motivated to, to learn more about you out of fear, of punishment. Would you remind us of the freedom that we have in you and would your goodness and your grace and your love be our motivation. It's your name we pray, amen.